Good morning. Christianity was birthed from Judaism. For many of us, though, the rituals and practices of ancient Judaism seem strange and unfamiliar. The writer, the letter to the Hebrews helps us understand our Jewish roots in some parts, and we'll find that this morning. Uh, our understanding of Jesus and his mission will be enhanced as we inspect the cloth from which Christianity was cut. And we're in a position now, as we've been going over the end of chapter 4, halfway through chapter 4 actually, and the first part of chapter 5 to throw the argument together, which is at the heart of the argument that the writer makes. And let's follow, follow along and I'll read it. Begins with a very strong statement, and it's one we'll look at when we look at the seminar. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart and no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus the son of God let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So, also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. And it begins then saying, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by following the same sort of disobedience. It tells us a couple things, and we've looked at this. The writer depicts God as being at rest, as being at rest. And so it's one of the, I guess, essential characteristics or attributes of deity that there is nothing that can upset you if you are all-powerful and all-knowing and all-seeing. And that's what the writer indeed would have us understand. It's a mistake, then, to imagine God restlessly overseeing world events. It's a mistake to think of God as being frustrated 
restless in what's happening, which is surprising for us, but that's what the writer would have us understand and would have us understand as well that learning to enter God's rest is priority one spiritually. Um, This is the takeaway from Israel's wilderness wanderings. And as you think about the 40 years in the wilderness and the fact that from the millions who went out of Egypt, only two of them arrived at the promised land. And in boiling that down to find what was the problem, we find that there were a number of things. There was bitter rebellion, part of the thing. There was hard-heartedness. There was disbelief-based disobedience. And if you trace that down even further, what we find is this singular problem. They did not enter God's rest. And that was the reason for their bitter rebellion. And that was the reason for their hard-heartedness. And that was the reason for their disbelief-based disobedience. And that's why the writer says, let us make every effort to enter God's rest. There is not a stronger imperative in the Bible. The way that's phrased, it is seen as being do this. And if you're looking to do something, this is what you do as a Christian. Enter God's rest. Um, God tells us to enter his rest, and we'll talk about that again in a couple weeks. We have a couple dozen people. It's an important seminar. And so if you're able to do that, register. There's no fee for it, but we'd just like to have enough materials. There's still room. Having said that, um, God tells us to enter his rest. And let's be clear about what that means. We are entering his rest, not exiting our restlessness. So you don't have to take your restlessness and overcome it in order to enter God's rest. Enter God's rest and bring your restlessness with you. It doesn't mean that we exit our restlessness, nor does it mean that God enters our restlessness and overrides it. Sometimes we think of God come into me and help me get over this thing. Come in and and make this thing go away. And God says, okay, I'll tell you what. I'll do one better rather than me enter you. And again, God does have relationship with us, but with respect to rest, he asks us to move. He says, enter his rest. Um, And he asks us to do so um, on a special day. And it's not Sunday. Well, it might be Sunday. As long as it's called today. So God dispenses his resources today. That means that you get what you need from him today. It does not mean that you're going to be able to look into the future, see the demands, feel your spiritual pulse, and find the energy to meet tomorrow's demands. You don't get tomorrow's resources Today, you get today's resources today. And what that means then, the nice thing about today is that by the time tomorrow comes, it's today. <laughs> and that's, and then, okay, it's time to enter God's rest. Um, we enter. When we try to stretch and we do this, the way it works in our world and it's the way we operate this way is we stockpile our resources. 
And if we have enough stockpiled resources, we look into the future and say, I'm good. Um, and the problem is when we are entering God's rest, we try to stretch today's security blanket over tomorrow's toes. And it doesn't quite reach. It doesn't fit. And we end up throwing it away. This is no good. I'm not going to have what I need come two years from now. That's right. You'll get it two years from now. Uh, we need to enter God's rest as this argument proceeds for a surprising reason. It seemed to indicate uh, because of the influence of the word of God, the word of God exerts a restless influence. And again, what's, I'm going to read verses 11 through 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning or judging is really a better word. The word is judging the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of God spoken of at the time is the Old Testament, and it tells us something about the influence of the Old Testament. And again, it's not bad. It's, it doesn't feel good. But in God's economy, something that doesn't feel good, which leads to a good end entering his rest, it might not feel good, but that doesn't mean it isn't good. And what the Word of God does, it makes us restless. The image is of being grabbed by the neck. That's what it means to be exposed. To be naked means to be naked. To exposed means to be in a vulnerable position, either grabbed by the neck or, as we've said, probably a more, the image that they would have in mind is a sacrificial animal with its neck elongated with a priest with a sword in its hand being prepared to exert the killing blow. That's the sense then of being uh, naked and exposed by the word of God. And again, as we've said, that if you are on a table and naked and somebody is over you with a sharp double-edged sword and they say, tip your head back for a moment, chances are you're not going to fall asleep. You're very exposed. In fact, you're going to be very restless because you can't see. And that's the image of the word of God. Prior to be summoned to the throne of grace, we're judged by the word of God. This doesn't help us to enter God's presence confidently. To be judged by the word of God, to be to have a sense of exposure to the thoughts and feelings that fall short. And then he invites us, no, commands us to enter his rest, enter his throne, and speak freely with him. Feeling naked and exposed, our default reaction, our default reaction, we might not be in touch with it, but it's what we do. We do what Adam and Eve did. We hide. And at some point, when God shows up, part of us moves towards him, part of us moves away from him. Maybe the good side of us moves towards him. But, the, you know, that other side, the side that we push under the water, that doesn't move towards him. That part's scared stiff 
about him. That's why we tend, in coming to God, we tend to push down those things that shouldn't come with us. So that means we don't enter into his rest, only a part of us does. The acceptable part of us does. Problem is God sees the other part. Um, What we do is we hide like Adam and Eve did. They ran behind trees when God showed up. Or when hiding doesn't work, then what we do what they did, which is when God said, who told you that you were naked? And what they did is they did. Yeah, the, the woman, she, uh, the woman you gave me, Adam said, she's the one that told me to eat the fruit. You know, I wouldn't have eaten it. You know, and so what we do is we hide or we hurl. We hide the things or we blame somebody else. And what God would have us to do is hold them. How can you hold something like that? God commands us to do so. And it's one thing to enter God's presence when we're when we're doing it well and saying it right, it's another thing to enter God's presence with confidence when we're falling short. That's why he talks about our divine connection, our divine connection. Look what it says in uh, 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We've talked about that word. Um, it's parousia in Greek. That's not important to know. What's important is the meaning of the word. It's the ability to enter the throne room, the office of a dignitary, and once there to speak freely. So what God asks, I'm going to say it stronger, tells and commands us to do is to approach the throne of grace, not just the good part, all of you. Approach the throne of grace, and once you're there, understanding that you're welcome there, speak freely. That's You don't have to ask permission to speak freely. It's given and commanded. And that's what he tells us to do. Let us there with confidence, speaking freely, Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I remember, I forget how long it was, maybe 10, 12 years ago, I was looking at the word and I looked at what that word was and I said, that can't be it. That can't be what it means to come to God's presence and speak freely. I don't, I'm not speaking freely with God. I don't do real well. I, I can listen good, but expressing to God is not something that I, that I would, I, naturally do very well. I tend to be more internal. Uh, but I saw it, and that's what it says. That's what it says. And now, after I can, it makes sense to me why it says that's not easy, but it makes sense. It's how we receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When judged by the Word of God, which tends to be rigid and unyielding, not a lot of give. You know, if you think about it, You've already committed adultery. If you're angry, you've already murdered. Not a lot of waffle, not a lot of give there. So that has a crushing influence if you're hearing it. If you're hearing it. Coveting is wrong, and that's why 
when administering that, we don't, in coming to God, find two stone tablets. What we find is Jesus, the Son of God, who understands what it's like to live in human flesh. And we look at his face, and there's sympathy there. Sympathy. There's a sense of understanding there. Thank God. And it causes us, as we understand it, to come down a little bit. And that entrance into the throne of grace, speaking freely, that seemed so impossible when we were naked and exposed, now seems a little bit more possible. Jesus, you're going to come with me? Yeah, Jesus says, I'm the one you're going to address. Okay, that's good. We're good. That's that's the image here. Um, Connecting with a merciful high priest makes it possible to enter God's presence and speak freely with him. I'm going to say that again. Connecting with a merciful high priest makes it possible to enter God's presence and speak freely with him there. As the writer of this letter expands our awareness of our great high priest, he tells us some things about high priests. Some of you like this kind of stuff. Some of you turn your minds off. I'll tell you when to come back. We're going to talk a little bit about Jewish rituals, and some of you are going to go, well, great, I, I could use five or ten minutes of sleep. I'm not going to go along with this, but just let me tell you a few things. It says every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. A high priest was responsible to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And he then represented the people before God. If you were a sinner, you really were glad that there was a high priest because it was his job to somehow these things that the word of God has exposed, even not just acts, thoughts, you said, you mean you're going to take Great. Anything I can do for you? I want a Coke when you come back. I can get you some pizza. You know, so you're glad that this high priest is going to enter God's presence on your behalf. A um, few things to understand about the sacrifices, sac- sacrifices of Judaism. You know, it included um, slaughter. Animals were slaughtered, bulls and lambs and doves and stuff like that. It really was bloody business. They said on at the time of Jesus, on the day when lambs were sacrificed, there might be 200,000 lambs that were sacrificed. Think about the blood. In fact, they had channels that channeled the blood from the tabernacle through the walls outside the walls. Um, And we might, and some believe, that the important thing was to kill the animal. That that has significance. That God sees an animal being slain. And somehow in the slaying of the animal, that's where the transference happens. And some would then say, and this is not correct, it's incorrect, that God looks at this animal being killed and looks at you and says, okay, my wrath is satisfied for a little while. I saw an animal die. And now I'll let you off. Again, that is the image. It is incorrect. 
not to a Jew. That's not how they understand it. What ends up happening, the right of atonement was, was not, and this is a little bit grisly, it wasn't the death of the animal, it was the provision of the blood. See, the animal was sacrificed in another part, and that wasn't as important. What was important is that the blood be collected. Now, the blood was splashed against the four sides of the altar. It was poured on the base of the altar. That's when it happened. That's when it happened. See, what the Bible says is, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you. I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the life. So here's where the deal. There's a connection between sin and death. Sin, death. Sin, death. There's only one thing that can break that chain, and it's blood. And so blood represents life. And then the image here is it's the blood that makes atonement for your life. God gives the blood. When we think of blood, we think of death. If you came in and there was a pool of blood, you would be alarmed. You would say, who died? What happened? But to a Jew, when they, and again, when you look and think about the tabernacle and the blood collecting and you'd say that's a lot of life that's the way God sees it again it's grisly but what we're trying to do is understand the way a Jew would have thought that's what we're doing for them they understood there's life in the blood and a Jew understood that the sacrifice was not the animal being punished it's not punish the animal and let the people off it's not about punishment it's not about ransom God isn't paying anyone off He's the one that's providing the blood. He provides the blood because it's the blood that gives life. And that's why when the priest takes the blood, splashes it on the altar, pours it on the base, we're to understand blood has been offered. We're good. I can come to the throne of grace. That's why we're glad the high priest functions um, after that, because of what he does, we can approach God safely. As high priest, as high priest, this is what Jesus does. In the presence of the Father, he doesn't have to be killed anymore because it's not the being killed that's important, it's the blood. And so therefore, he has an eternal supply. It never gets wiped off. He just is standing before God on our behalf. The blood has been shed. It's there in place, there in place. And to a Jew, to a Jewish mind, they understood. And what they would have heard, I'm not sure if they would have believed it, but they understood what it meant. Well, good. Why did Jesus die? There's an article in the thing. I'm going to read it quickly. Um, follow along. Just listen. It's from uh, Face for Grace, which is a... Looking at the grace of God in the book of John. It's, a, it's just short. I'm going to read this. Why did Jesus die? Jesus' crucifixion is the most significant, most talked about event in the history of the world. You'd imagine that such a frequently analyzed, oft-discussed event would also be the best understood. Sadly, the reason for Jesus' death is frequently misunderstood. 
And this misunderstanding creates spiritual confusion. Fortunately, Jesus provided a striking analogy to clarify why he had to die. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. In explaining the significance of his crucifixion, Jesus referred to an event that took place when the children of Israel, under Moses' leadership, were wandering in the wilderness. En route to the promised land, the Israelites became bitter and resentful. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. In response, the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. Desperate to deal with the snake infestation, the people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Jesus used this story to explain why he would be lifted up on a cross. Many teach and believe that Jesus was punished for our sins on the cross. Jesus, however, didn't view his death as punishment. The snake wasn't lifted up to absorb punishment. The snake was placed on a pole to provide healing. Jesus did not go to the cross to receive divine punishment. In the Old Testament, God declared the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves upon the altar. When we see blood, we think of death. God sees life. God did not vent his wrath on the animal that was sacrificed. God gave the blood in order to give life. The life of the animal was not taken in anger. The life of the animal was given in love. The image of a snake on a pole drawn from this story was chosen by the medical profession as the symbol for healing. In the same way that the snake was put on a pole to provide physical life, Jesus was lifted up on the cross so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. His death is not to be understood as life taken in anger. His death is to be understood as life given in love. Jesus went to the cross not to receive divine punishment, but to provide divine healing. With respect to high priests, it's not just what they do, but how they do it that's significant relative to the degree of comfort you have in dealing with them. As God's representative, he could deal gently with sinners. The word for deal gently, in secular Greek, it describes the balance between emotional indifference, apathy, and emotional excess. It's this word deals gently. It's to be moderately passioned. So there's a mean, there's a center place. So you neither go too far this way towards apathy. You don't go too far this way towards being excessively emotional. That's the sense of the word. It means then to restrain or moderate one's feelings. And so to deal gently and considerately with another. So what it means then, 
as high priest and Jesus in spades, when Jesus looks at you, he does, he neither fawns upon you nor frowns at you. You don't control him. Your obedience doesn't make him buoyant. Your disobedience doesn't make him depressed. He is moderately passionate. He is a shepherd who understands sheep. You cannot surprise him. You can't surprise him. You can't control his attitude. If you obey, you're not going to give Jesus a good day. And if you disobey, you're not going to make a bad day for him. He's too powerful. He knows too well. He himself understands what it's like to be embodied. That's the difference between an angel speaking on God's behalf and Jesus, because angels are unembodied spirits. Does an angel know what it's like to be trapped in a body? Does an angel know what it's like to see something and be terrified? No. Does Jesus know what it's like to see something and be terrified? Yes. That's why he's sympathetic, because he has felt what we feel. And angels are not sympathetic because they don't. Again, it's not that you throw rocks at angels. They just don't have the equipment to be sympathetic. But Jesus does. He's the one who serves as high priest on our behalf. Thank God. Thank God. Um, the sympathy of a high priest enables him to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. By the way, the ignorant and the wayward, it's a way to describe some things. It's, it's a way to describe sheep. Sheep naturally make foolish decisions, and a shepherd is aware of that. He's not surprised by it, and that's why he develops a relationship to help sheep. Um, Jesus said, Matthew 11, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So what he says is no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Who is it that Jesus chooses to reveal the Father to. He, Jesus goes on and says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, under the load, under the weight, who understand the demands and feel them. Jesus says, You who are weary, come to me. And what it indicates, he goes on and says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you this our word. Rest. The Father says, enter my rest. The Son says, he opens the door to rest. You know what that means for you? What God wants you to experience is rest. Father and Son and Spirit. Make every effort to enter God's rest. Um, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Rest is what Jesus extends to us. The rest Jesus provides is linked with his attitude. It's very difficult to rest in the presence of somebody who's restless. 
If I'm fidgeting around and you come and I'm a doctor and I'm just kind of doing this and going there and I say, hey, take a seat and relax. You know, you know it's, kind of, it's kind of difficult to relax if you're moving all over the place. Uh, we have this tendency to think about entering God's rest and he's looking at the world affairs and just take a seat. And it's difficult to rest when you imagine God being like that. That's why Jesus tells you I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You find rest for your soul. See, the rest is not just what he does, but how he does it. It's not just what he does, but who he is and how he acts. Jesus is not restless. Neither is the Father. And they know everything about you. Here's the trick. When you understand that and can enter that rest, it starts to turn you into being more gentle yourself. You start to become Christ-like. Christ-like. What's Christ-like? Gentle. Aware. Compassionate. Sacrificial. As a high priest, Jesus stands before God on our behalf, neither overly angry or overly happy, not fawning over us or frowning upon us. He's not controlled by us. He represents us before God. Jesus is a defined connection. Why does Jesus exist that way? It's nice. That makes us feel closer to Jesus. Who's the one who thought all this up? Who's the one that put the high priest in place? Who's the one that determined that the high priest needed to be sympathetic? Is that Jesus the Son? No. It's God the Father. See, he's the divine connector. The sovereignty of sympathy is that God in his sovereign wisdom understood that you would need a representative to stand who was sympathetic because God knows people. And that's why he puts the high priest in place. Every Israelite high priest is appointed to his office by God. That's what it says. No one takes this honor for himself. Only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him, who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says in another place, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Every Israelite high priest then is appointed to his office by God. God authorized and empowered Jesus to be high priest. That's what it means. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What is Jesus doing now? He is living out what he was trained to be. What was Jesus trained to be? Mankind's high priest. How does he do it? He takes the blood and applies it at the altar, the heavenly one. And so, in so doing, provides pardon, the purging of sin. There's no ransom here. There's no wrath here. It's the cleansing of sin, the healing of sin. And the way he does it, with sympathy and gentleness, that's what his role is. God qualified Jesus for his office. How was Jesus qualified for his office, by the way? Why is Jesus able to do this? You know why? Because he was 
put into a womb like we are. He came out of a womb like we come. He lived in a culture, not the same culture, but he lived in a culture like we live. He grew up from childhood into adolescence, into manhood, just like we do. He then faced his own demise, just as we have. Why did he have to do all those things? Because he can't be your high priest if he hasn't experienced what you go through. Jesus was prepared for his office by the entirety of his life. Jesus could have just been plopped down on the planet and thrown on a cross if that's all that needed to happen. If he just needed to die to be punished, he didn't need to grow up. He didn't need to experience things. They would be not essential, but they were essential. Especially for him to be, for him to be a high priest. He's got to understand That's what he's doing. And that's what the Jews, that's what the writer would have us to understand. Uh, The preparation for Jesus' vocation as high priest covered the whole of his life. Since his ordination is complete, Jesus serves as priest before God for mankind. Again, the qualification for priests was sympathy. That's why Jesus had such problems with the Pharisees who claimed to represent God. But listen to what he said in Matthew 23. Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. They preach, but they don't practice. What do you mean? They tie up heavy loads, burdens, hard to bear, lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. That's the problem. What was their problem? It's not necessarily what they were asking, but how they were asking. They Lack sympathy. Why would that be? I'm not sure, but that's where Jesus had a problem. God sovereignly provided for sympathy. That's why we have a high priest. And what God would have us do, make every effort to enter God's rest, knowing that there are things that you would say, "Uh, I can't enter because I do this and I think that and I've done that. And that's where God says, oh, let me introduce you to somebody. I sent my son so he could be a sympathetic high priest, and you're going to come to him. Okay. Okay. Without sympathy, we cannot enter rest. Devin, come on up. Let's pray for this guy's getting married next weekend. Pray for him. God, thanks for Devin, and thanks for his heart. Thanks for his relationship with you and, and how it expresses itself in his music. He cares about you. This is not a performance for him. It's something that he, he would follow you with his life, and you would have him then walk through life with Alexis. Thank you for bringing them to this place, that you have been with him and Alexis. You will be with them, and you will continue to guide them into the future. You will never cast them adrift, and you'll never leave them behind. Thank you for the good plans that you have for him. Those plans involve walking through life with Alexis. Bless them with everything they need to do your will. Work in them that which is pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen.